Welcome to Dropping In from Omega Institute, a podcast that explores the many ways to awaken the best in the human spirit. I'm Callie Alpert. Dropping in today, Rupert Spira. As an author and teacher, Rupert is a leading voice in the studies of contemporary spirituality and non-duality. From an early age, he was deeply interested in the nature of reality and the source of lasting peace and happiness. Rupert began to meditate at the age of 17 and spent the next 20 years immersed in learning a variety of ancient wisdom traditions, including Advaita Vedanta, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sufism, and Zen. Rupert is the author of 12 books, which have been translated into a dozen languages. He is also a globally recognized ceramic artist who exhibited worldwide for 30 years before closing his studio in 2011 to devote his time to sharing non-dual teachings throughout the world. Welcome, Rupert, and thank you so much for dropping in today. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here again. So how does it feel, number one, to be back here at Omega after so many years? It's lovely to be back here again. As you say, it's several years since I've been here. And as soon as we turned into the drive this afternoon, I immediately started recognizing the, the, the buildings and the landscape. And it was just such a pleasure to be here again and to see that so little has changed in a rapidly changing world. Yeah, so tr talk about a duality. That's the perfect segue to get into, that con into our conversation today. The duality between things that haven't changed and that are constantly changing. How yes. do you, as a non-dual expert and teacher and author, even reconcile those two things well, when you're observing that? Really, the essence of the non-dual understanding is to draw attention to that which never changes. And by that, of course, I'm not referring to a, a campus, an organization. I'm, I'm referring to, to, to the eternal, that, that in us, which never changes as contrasted with uh, that in us which is always changing, namely our, our thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions, and so on. And really the essence of the non-dual understanding is to draw attention to that element of ourself which is ever-present and unchanging. Before we get into uh, what it means to become familiar with non-duality or non-dualism? Which one do you use, number one, as terminology? Not uh, non-duality, but actually I, I very rarely even use that term because I, and that term for some people sounds a little exotic and if you ask most people what do you understand by non-duality, most people would never have heard of it and yet what the so-called non-dual teaching um, speaks of is something very familiar and intimate to, to everyone. So I, I don't even tend to use that term very much. So for the sake of people that are listening and watching our conversation today that aren't familiar with the concept, if we can use it at least just to yes, start course, the conversation, yes. the idea yeah. of non-duality, why is it important for people to know what it is and what is it to you after all these decades of studying it? Okay. Uh, the non-dual understanding is the, the understanding that underlies all the great religious and spiritual traditions. And if we were to uh, take the last uh, two and a half or three thousand years of religious and spiritual uh, instruction and practice, and we were to distill it all into a, a single sentence, it might sound something like this. Uh, peace and happiness are the nature of our being. 
and we share our being with everyone and everything. If one has understood that, if one feels that, and if one leads one's life to the best of one's ability in a way that is consistent with that understanding, then one has really understood everything there is to understand about the great traditions. So basically, you've just done the most beautiful distillation for everyone who's a seeker or a spiritual aspirant looking for the magic sauce. Yes, in, in whatever tradition, right. this same understanding, whether you're a Christian, a Buddhist, a, a, a Sikh, a Hindu, a Jew, or an atheist, an agnostic, whatever tradition one is in, really, all these traditions distill to the same essential understanding. Peace and happiness are the nature of our being, and we share our being with everyone and everything. So if peace and happiness are the nature of our being, and we are happiness based on this yes. teaching, then why does it elude so many people? That's, that, that's a beautiful question. It's the essential question. If, as you say, peace is our, is our nature, yeah. then surely we should be experiencing it all the time, because after all, we are experiencing ourselves all the time. And the reason is, simple, whilst everybody does experience their self all the time, most people's sense of their self is so thoroughly mixed up with the content of their experience, thoughts, feelings, activities, relationships, and so on, that whilst everyone experiences their self, not everybody experiences their self clearly, as it essentially is. And it is this lack of clear self-knowledge that is responsible for the veiling of the peace and quiet joy that are the nature of our being or our self. And it is for this reason that self-knowledge or the recognition of the nature of the mind is considered the essence of the great tradition. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that because self-inquiry is paramount to the direct path. Yes, um, yes. Or the road to freedom or liberation or whatever yes. words we want yes. to use. I know you're not a huge fan of the word enlightenment, if I recall. That's very true. That's a yes, little bit yes, heady. That's yeah. a big responsibility, the enlightenment yeah. thing, right? Um, how does one begin to see themselves clearly? What if this is a, like um, a, a language or conversation that is really new to somebody? What does it even mean to start that process? Well, the, nature, the, the, the name that each of us gives to ourselves is I. I am having a conversation with you. I am sitting on a chair. I have just traveled from the UK. I am staying at Omega for the weekend. I am cold or tired or hungry and, and so on. Always each of these statements contains this reference to ourself, I or I am. And then this basic I or I am is then qualified by an activity such as a, a conversation or by a state of the mind such as um, I am sad, or, or a condition of the body, I, I am tired, but always the basic I or I am, which is subsequently qualified by some experience. So the, the experience, uh, having a conversation, sitting on a chair, being tired, is always changing. The experience is not essential to us. We are not always tired. Right. We are not always having a conversation. We're not always sitting on a chair, but we always are. I always am. So that this, this phrase, I am, is really the key. The phrase, I am, before anything has been added to it, before I have become this or that, just the pure I am 
refers to our essential irreducible self or being, just that the fact of being or, or being aware. So that this, what is sometimes called the, the practice of self-inquiry or the, the direct path is to go directly to that essential, irreducible, unchanging, ever-present aspect of ourself that we refer to when we say simply, I or I am. I'm thinking of a blank canvas is coming to mind as you're talking about that, the idea that the canvas, this is just a visual metaphor that's coming to mind right now, the idea of a blank canvas as our beingness. Perfect. And then all the colors of paint that get splattered on experiences, relationships. Those are our experiences, the exactly. The things about as yes. the... Yes. The, it, well, that, that's, a, that's a beautiful and, and, and appropriate analogy, the, 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 the blank canvas of our being. Mm the fact of being or, or being aware upon which or within which the entire content of our experience, thoughts, images, feelings, actions, relationships, and so on, arises. But none of those are essential. The, 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 the colors that are painted on the canvas are not essential to the canvas. When, when you remove, you have a painting, colorful, exotic painting. When you remove all the brushstrokes, all the colors that have been superimposed onto the canvas, what what, what is the... What is remain? What what cannot be removed from the canvas? Just the canvas. The canvas. And what cannot be removed from ourself? Only that can be considered to be our essential self. Let, let's take a thought, for instance. Thoughts are continually coming and going. And when a thought disappears, none of us feel, oh, a little bit of myself has gone with it. No, the thought vanishes mm. and it leaves ourself intact. When a feeling disappears, a feeling lasts a little bit longer than a thought, and we, we might have a mood or a, it might not last all afternoon, but sooner or later the feeling goes, but our self remains. So yes, that our self is like the canvas. It is, uh, it is that aspect of ourself that cannot be removed from us. So in essence, what I'm hearing, again, for someone who maybe as an early uh, directive, if someone were to start the process of self-inquiry, is the idea of separating out our being from everything else that's going on and stirring around exactly. us. And I'm smiling and, and laughing at the idea of separate even, because that's antithetical to the concept of non-duality in, in a Exactly. Achieve it, right? Exactly, sort of. it is. Can I upgrade your your metaphor from the canvas with paint on it Please. to the screen with images on it? Right. Now, the, the reason I do that is because it is possible physically to scrape the paint off a canvas. In other words, it is possible to separate the paint from the canvas. However, we can't scrape scrape an image off the screen. So that's that's closer. You, you've 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 um, put your finger on on an essential. Point. We're starting by separating the image from the screen. We are the blank screen of awareness or being. And the images, that, that is the content of our experience, thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions, and so on. So just as one who is lost in the, con to, to one who is lost in the content of a movie, we might say, uh, turn your attention away from the content of the movie. Maybe even turn off the movie in order to see the screen. In other words, we make a distinction between the, the screen mm -hmm. and the movie for the purpose of drawing attention to the screen, which up until that moment had been overlooked. Why? Because we were so fascinated by the, the content of the movie. 
Now, we know that the screen cannot really be separated from the image. They're not really two separate things. But at the early stage of our investigation, it is legitimate to separate them, simply to draw attention to the presence of the screen. So we separate our self-awareness or pure being from the content of experience. Why? Because most of us are lost in the content of experience, our thoughts, feelings, relationships, and so on. So to such a one, we start by saying, no, turn away from the content of your experience, your thoughts and feelings, and so on. Become aware of your being. Mm. Become aware of the fact of being aware. Uh, having recognized awareness is what I essentially am, we then explore the nature of awareness. And then this um, d division of our experience into awareness plus experience ha has done its job. We then collapse the apparent distinction mm. and come to the true non-dual understanding in which there is no distinction between our essential being and anyone and everything. So this is not an overnight process. <laughs> it, it's not an overnight process. It, it's not an overnight process. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very, very rare are the people who can ask themselves the question once, what is it that cannot be separated from me? Or what is it that knows or is aware of my experience? And as a result of that question, we'll go directly to their true nature and stay there. It's possible that there, I, I, I know of one instance in the entire history of um, spirituality, but it- Am it, I looking at that? No, 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 absolutely <laughs> not. No, that, uh, certainly not. No, it took me, it took me many years yeah. to, to, to recognize um, what I'm suggesting and, and then to be able to speak about it clearly and simply. So yes, it, it, it's a process. It, it's called the direct path, not because we, necessarily go there instantaneously, right. but because we go there directly. Mm. You can fly from Heathrow to New York directly without going via Ma Madrid, mm. but just because you go there directly doesn't necessarily mean you go there instantly. Mm. So the direct path doesn't mean instantaneous, it just means we go directly. And by that I mean we don't give our attention, for instance, to um, repeating a mantra. That would be to give our attention to an object of experience. Mm. And I mean no criticism of mantra meditation. I practiced it for 20 years mm -hmm. myself. We don't give our attention to a flame or to the breath or to the pause between breaths or to the teacher or to an image. We give our attention to, or attention gives its attention to itself, to its source. So in th that's why it's referred to the direct path. We give our attention directly to the, the source of the mind, the, the, the essential nature of the mind or, or our original being. I've always believed that it also takes a lot of courage to look at yourself in the mirror and start the process of, and continue, and commit to the process of self-inquiry. Do you Yes, do you I think it that? does require courage. Most of all, it requires love. Mm. Love for the truth. L love for the truth, irrespective of the consequences that it may have for your life. Mm. And as a result of that, it may also require courage because our, our sense of ourself is um, so invested in our activities, our relationships. So the more we investigate our, our essential self, the, um, the old sense of ourself, which is, which is referred to as the ego, the, 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 the sense of ourself that is derived from and dependent on the content of relationships, 
sorry, the content of experience, mm -hmm. activities, relationships, beliefs, feelings, and so on. Um, our sense of ourself begins to be divested mm. of all those um, qualities, activities, relationships that it previously, with which it previously defined itself. So there is a kind of letting go mm -hmm. process, a letting go of all the all the beliefs we had about ourselves. Uh, sometimes activities uh, that we engaged in, or, or relationships. So that there is a uh, this um, love to explore the nature of ourselves mm. does sometimes require the courage to let go of, of any of our previous investment in uh, the content of our experience. So, so yes, it starts with this love of truth. Yeah. And that, um, as you rightly say, does indeed imply the, the courage to, 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 to go for the truth of one's true nature, irrespective to the, 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 the personal cost to you. Yeah, yes. to have the desire for the truth supersede how concretized and caught up we humans are in our patterns and our stories yes. and our narratives yes, and exactly. our scars well, and letting all that loosen up absolutely. and be uncomfortable to dismantle. Some people seem to have this um, love of truth from a very early age that they just, even if they weren't quite born with it, quite early on in their childhood or their teenage years, they develop this love of truth. And that love of truth becomes a kind of guiding principle of their lives. But yeah. for other people, they have to take, take a harder route. They have to learn by experience, constant failure after failure after failure in life until uh, after numerous uh, failed relationships, failed jobs, uh, failed health, uh, failed finance, whatever it is for each of us, it begins to dawn on us that the the peace and the happiness which we previously sought in objective experience can't be found there. Mm -hmm. Now, to some people, they just recognize that once. Uh, you know, w uh, one failed relationship mm -hmm. should be enough mm -hmm. for all of us to, to uh, um, enable us to understand, to seek peace and happiness in something objective is destined for failure. But in practice, most of us need a, a series of, of failures to gradually cease investing our desire for peace and happiness in in objective experience. And so we, it, we gradually develop this love of truth until in the end it becomes an overriding, until we understand clearly nothing objective can give me the happiness for which I long. And, and, and at that point there is this intense desire for truth, but it may take someone a number of years to come to that. For some, knocking their head upside the brick wall many, many times over and over again until the, and exactly and and, and for others, right? age sixteen, one small failure is enough to awaken this keen interest. Yeah, um, in 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 the nature of their self. Yes, that's always been amazing and interesting to me too. It's the um, the the different paths that are charted for humans and people's moment of uh, awakening or some revelatory experience at age I, five or 16 I or agree, 72. It's I, fascinating. I agree. It's fascinating and, and um, very hard to account for. Yeah. Why, why is it that two people with almost identical, same parents, same upbringing, same education, one will be um, this interest in the nature of their being or the nature of reality will be awakened very early on in their life and the other will have to go through life's experience uh, suffering and, and, and may never ask this question. How do you account for that? Well, of course, a sort of a theory of previous lives is is a is a um, 
reasonably satisfactory way of accounting for that. But mm -hmm. I, I prefer just to leave it a mystery and to say uh, it's very difficult to account for that. What, what, what is it that... Um, why did we, for instance, develop this love of truth? Was it a, a, a result of... Did we earn it? No. I, I just found myself at an early age passionately interested in these matters. Why? I don't know. Did I do anything to, to earn that or deserve that? No, it was just given to me as a gift. And now a word about Omega Teacher Studio. Get ready to be inspired from your very own cushion, yoga mat, or couch. Omega Teacher Studio brings your favorite teachers direct to you, live and online, from their studios for one-plus-hour classes on topics that matter the most. They're easy to fit into your schedule and affordable, too. Learn more at eomega.org studio. To receive a 10% discount on any teacher studio tuition, enter the code DI10 when registering. That's the letters DNI and the numbers 1 and 0. Now back to our episode. Speaking of you starting at an early age, did I read that it was like at age seven you went to your mom and said something to the effect of um, all of the world is God's dream? It, or I did. My, my mother um, reminds me of this regularly. Aged, I think it was age seven. I said to my mother, "I think that all of I think that the world is God's dream, mm. and that our role in the world is to make God's dream a beautiful, as beautiful a dream." as possible. So yes, I had this early intuition, which I then um, lost. I didn't completely lose it, but it was, it was obscured as, as I grew up by, by the usual boyish and teenage pursuits, but it was reawakened again in, in my mid-teens. So, so it, it um, yes, it was always something in me from a very early age that this at, at that stage, I conceived it simply as God. Mm. It was it was a label. I was brought up as a Christian, so it was the conventional label that I put onto it. And it took many years before I really understood what was what was meant by that. Was there an event or a moment that brought you back to it when you were a teenager, or did it just sort of happen? Um, I think there have been many defining moments. There were two defining moments. One at the age of 15 when I came across the poetry of Rumi. Mm. I was uh, studying science, wanting to become a, a biochemist or a, to study medicine. I, and I came across Rumi's poetry and I was very, very touched by that. That, that when, when I read it, I, I, I recognized something. So that, 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 I think, was the first event that really reawakened this childhood intuition that I had had. And then um, some years later, aged um, 21 or 22, my, my, uh, my first intimate relationship came um, abruptly <laughs> to an end mm. um, in a, a phone call. I, in my uh, teenage naivety, just presumed that, you know, we'd, we'd live happily ever after. And, and then a, a phone, after three years, a, a, a brief phone call put paid to that. And I was so shocked by it. Mm. Uh, although I didn't, um, I didn't formulate it in these terms for some time, but, but the result of that uh, um, event was, I, I would later formulate in this way, uh, um, if uh, 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 um, an object, a person, an experience, an event, if we can invest our 
desire for lasting happiness in, well, in my case, it was a person, can come to an end so swiftly, so mm. unexpectedly. In what can we reliably invest our desire for lasting peace and happiness? Because lasting peace and happiness is, is all anyone really deeply wants. And of course, I wanted lasting peace and happiness, and I had invested it in, in this relationship. It came very abruptly to an end. And so this question was precipitated in me. Is there, is there anything I can invest, that I can reliably invest my longing for happiness in? And it became very clear to me that nothing was reliable. And this precipitated this, this inward search. What is there in my experience? that I can rely on? Is there anything stable? Is there anything reliable? Everything changes, thoughts, images, feelings, activities, relations, every, is there anything that doesn't change? Is there anything that, that I can rely on or that I can hold to? And so this, it, it, I had the intuition when I was seven years old, it was reawakened, reawakened by my reading of Rumi at age 15, but age 22 when this event happened, it, my interest in these matters became a passion. Mm. Finding Rumi, connecting with Rumi at age 15, and then finding the awareness that all is transitory in your early 20s. Sounds like your course was perhaps charted for you. It, it, it was charted, and it, it started with, um, uh, as I said, this simple intuition, everything is God's dream, so it was formulated in Christian terms. Then, age 15, I was um, introduced to Rumi's poetry and the Mevlevi turning, which I went on to learn. So that was a, um, a Sufi it, it took the shape of a Sufi um, influence. And then age 22, when I first asked this question, um, is there anything stable and unchanging in myself? Mm -hmm. That's the path of knowledge, the Vedantic approach. So you've been on this path for a handful of decades now. For, um, yes, nearly, nearly 50 years, yes. I'm curious what it's like to be you. And I say that, I mean, with a smile, but um, what does it feel like for you to be in your body with all of this wisdom and experience and expertise around the idea of beingness and one consciousness and non-duality. Do you feel like you're most often in a state of beingness without the content I, I, and the I never mind feel, flow, Kelly, mind stream? Kelly, I never feel that I have any extraordinary knowledge or extraordinary experience or, really? or um, I never feel that I'm a teacher. Um, mm. No, it just, it's just clear to me that uh, um, the nature of my being is peace. And f as I get older, fewer and fewer experiences have the capacity to veil that peace. And it's also increasingly clear to me that I, I share my being with everyone and everything. And that's all. It's nothing, it's nothing special. It just seems simple and obvious. What does that feel like? to share your being. It feels with. like peace on the inside and love on the outside. Do you feel that way most of the time? Yes. As I say, fewer and fewer experiences have the capacity to veil that experience. So I'm not saying that, that some experiences don't still have the capacity to, to veil this um, feeling of peace on the inside and love on the outside, but uh, it's not veiled for long. And um, when they are veiled, it doesn't last very long. So it happens less and less often and lasts for less and less time. Do you attribute that to 
practice and fortifying those spiritual muscles that you've been working with for so many decades? That sort of that, you know, that reserve of spaciousness kicks in faster than it might for somebody sitting on the bus next to you? Yes. The the reason I'm hesitating, Callie, is because um, I I want to answer yes and no. Certainly early on in my life, I was very disciplined. After I learned to meditate when I was 17 for 20 years, I uh, practiced mantra meditation for half an hour every morning, every evening. I I practiced the Mevlevi turning, Gurdjieff's movements. I I was disciplined and practiced. I studied a lot. But in time, um, self-inquiry gives way to self-abidance. So what started off as a a practice, my my understanding of practice over the years became more and more refined. And I realized that we can't can't practice being what we already are. We can only practice, like for instance, if we're interested in in, um, playing tennis and we're not a very good tennis player, we can practice playing tennis or playing the piano or, or cooking because we don't have those skills yet. But we are already ourself. Our, our being is already fully present, unconditionally uh, peaceful. It doesn't need to be made such. It only needs to be recognized as such. So what started off in me as a, 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 an intense and, and disciplined um, practice gradually gave way over the years to, to self-abidance or self-resting. In the spiritual community, there is such an, an, an idea that enlightenment is the, the ultimate attainment. And as you quite rightly uh, mentioned early on, I don't, I don't use that term because for, for, for many years, for, for 20 years, I thought of enlightenment as a marvelous, exotic experience that one might acquire. It's a very romantic concept. It's a very romantic concept that a lot of people have. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, a lot of people feel that, that, um, you need to devote yourself to a teacher or to a, to a tradition that you need to... The, the enlightenment is, a, is an extraordinary experience that one might acquire if one meditates for long enough or practiced, practices hard enough. I certainly subscribed to that belief for many, many years and it, and it dictated the, the, mm. my, my spiritual practice as a result. But, um, and then I came to realize that enlightenment is not an exotic experience that we acquire. It's not, indeed, it's not an experience at all. It's simply the recognition of the nature of our being. It's the least exotic experience mm. there is. I mean, sometimes I, I, I say even the, uh, even the taste of tea is exotic compared to the recognition of the nature of our being. Because as you said earlier, the, uh, our being is like the blank canvas or the, the transparent screen or the silent space. It's not something that we acquire, it's what we are. We don't become it, we recognize it. Right. And it's not, it's not difficult to recognize. When we're watching a movie, however um, intense or dramatic the content of the movie is, it's not difficult to see the screen. In fact, we're always seeing the mm. screen. We just don't realize it. Why? Because we're lost in the drama of the movie. So the essence of meditation or prayer or practice is just this coming back to ourselves 
nothing could be less exotic. Nothing could be easier. <laughs> nothing could be simpler. Mm. I think a lot of people would find relief in actually hearing and knowing that. It's a that, relief, you know. You know it, it takes it, a lot of pressure off people that are. It took a lot of pressure. I, I, really I aimed for stuff. enlightenment for 20, 25 yeah. years. I was aiming for an extraordinary experience. And of course, I always felt that I was failing mm. because I never had that marvelous experience. But even in the thought, I am failing, the I am is shining there. Mm. All you need to do is soften the focus of the attention from the sense of failure and, and allow the, the I am, your being, to, to shine. It was even in the sense of failure, even in the, in the sense, I am seeking enlightenment. The I am is, is present there at the beginning of the search. It's not something we find at the end of the search. So it's such a relief. It's such a relief. <laughs> it yeah. really, there's a, um, an, another beautiful uh, teacher that was here about a month ago. And in one of his teachings, he said, it's all so simple that we don't trust it. Yes. Yes. It, yes. It, very it, much it's in true. tune with what it's you're true. saying. Yes. It's really... Yes. Did you have, now that we're relieving everyone of this aha moment, this elusive aha moment that doesn't necessarily exist, did you have a moment or a time in your life where at least you realized your transition from the seeking to the being no. and let go of the seeking no. just kind of happened no. you just melted into it yeah no i didn't it's like um you know i flew in from heathrow yesterday and uh, woke up this morning jet lagged after a sleepless night with a headache so drank drank lots of water and went and got some fresh air and then got on with the day's activities. And at some stage, um, mid-afternoon, I noticed that my headache had gone. Was there a, a wonderful moment halfway through the day when the headache dis I didn't notice the headache going. I just looked back mid-afternoon and thought, oh, my headache's gone. But I hadn't formulated it to myself. So it, it, it's, like, it's like happened like that for me. The, the, the headache is, of course, Sorrow, mm. suffering. No, there wasn't one big moment when I thought. I've, I've never had the thought I've recognized my true nature. I've never, I just noticed that, that my suffering had left me. If I may ask, did you know deep suffering in your life? Yes, yes. Um, I have had moments of, of, of deep suffering. Um, I've never been deeply depressed for long periods of time. So I've never known suffering of an extended, long period of time. But yes, there have been moments of suffering, certainly. I, I, I know what it's like to, to suffer, yes, yes. Let's talk about suffering on a global scale right now. Um, the world has been through so much, especially in these last few years. Yes. And it seems like there's a lot that's not letting up. There's more dismantling and more uprising and yes. lots of political divide and all the things yes. that we know about what are, what's going on. How do you speak to the idea of beingness with people that are really in the throes of deep suffering, tragedy, loss, in all kinds of ways that are happening on this planet right now? It's very difficult, Kelly, to, to answer that question generally because um, to a mother who has just lost her child, 
I would never say um, there is a place in you that is um, untouched by your suffering. Simply take the thought, I am, and allow yourself to be drawn into that place. That, that, that would be um, insensitive in the face of her, her trauma and her loss. I, I would say, well, I don't know what I would say, but I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't disregard her suffering and take her directly right. to her, her true nature. Um, in such somebody else who told me about their suffering, I, I might disregard it and um, I might ask them when you say, I am hurt or upset, tell me about the I or the I am. And in that way, try to get them to take their attention away from the feeling of hurt back towards their being. But uh, I, I don't have a prescription, I think. I think it's, um, although it's true that in theory, um, everybody's being is present and available, one can't just say to everybody, turn away from the content of your experience, go back to your being. You have to be sensitive. One has to be um, intuitive, the kind of level of understanding that the person one is speaking to and, and take a step towards them. So I, I, I don't have a general answer for your question. I know it's a loaded one. I well, uh, so many people are looking for guidance yes, right well, now. But, but having said that, if if you were to ask me in, in general, why is it that there is so much despair in the world on the inside and so much conflict on the world on the outside? Mm. I would say the reason there is so much despair is because we have overlooked the nature of our own being. And the reason there is so much conflict is because most of us don't recognize that the being that we essentially are is shared with everyone and everything. Uh, for instance, if we look at the, the conflicts that are taking place in the world today, would those conflicts be taking place if the people who are participating in them knew that they shared their being with the people they were in conflict with. So that, that, that single understanding, this is why the, this distillation of the non-dual understanding, peace is the nature of our being, that takes, case, that takes care of the, the despair and the sorrow we feel on the inside, and we share our being with everyone and everything. That takes care of the mm. conflicts between individuals, between communities, and between nations. Do you dream or vision a world where people speak this language a little bit more commonly in the name of believing that it can really bring people together and create more peace and harmony on this planet? Yes, I do. I do. I see no reason why everybody shouldn't know that there is a place in themselves that is free of sorrow and always available and that what they essentially are is what everyone and everything essentially is yes why, why shouldn't everybody know that it's not it's not complicated you don't uh, anyone is capable of understanding that yes why shouldn't that message be made freely available uh, to everyone and and the means by which one may discover that for oneself, likewise be made 
freely available, a simple means. Yes, I, I, I do um, have a vision and I, I, I hope and, and, and pray that that will come about. May it be so. It's, May it's, it be so, yes. It's, it's a beautiful yeah. dream. Yes, yes. So I'd like to ask you these three final rapid-fire questions that I'd like to ask everybody on dropping in. The first one is, um, I'd like to grant you one wish for our listeners and our viewers. What would you wish for them? I would wish that they discover the place in themselves that is already and inherently free of sorrow. And if I were to grant you one wish for yourself, what would that wish be? So my wish for myself would be that um, I spend the rest of my life, however um, long that may be, in um, sharing and communicating this understanding as simply, experientially and effectively as I am able to do so. And finally, if there were one takeaway from our conversation today that you hope our viewers and our listeners take with them, what would it be? It would be that that, that what they have been seeking all their lives in activities, substances, objects, relationships, and, and so on, is simply available in the core of themselves and that all that is necessary to do is just to just to turn in oneself to one's essential being and although that may at first feel neutral the, the blank canvas as you say in time its innate quality of peace makes itself known to them and in time its quality of unconditional joy makes itself known. Well, speaking of joy, this has been such a joy to spend this time with you today. It Thank has, you Kelly. so very much for making yourself available. Thank you, Kelly. It's been a beautiful conversation. Such Thank a you. pleasure. If people would like to find out more about you, where can they find that information? Well, the two places I would recommend. My YouTube channel has um, an embarrassing number of YouTube clips on it. So go, go to my YouTube channel. There's lots of material there. And um, or, or my website, rupertspira.com, uh, detailed l lots of um, uh, details of events, publications, audios, videos, and so on. They, they would be the two main sources. Thank you so much. Thank Such you, Kelly. Thank Real you. Real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for dropping in with Omega Institute. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. If you'd like to see what we look like, watch the video version of Dropping In on Omega's YouTube channel. Dropping In is made possible in part by the support of Omega members. Omega members enjoy a host of beneficial experiences when they donate to help sustain Omega's programming. To learn more, visit eomega.org membership and check out our many online learning opportunities featuring your favorite teachers and thought leaders at eomega.org slash online learning. I'm Callie Alpert, producer and host of Dropping In. Our video editor is Granel Knox. The music and mix are by Scott Mueller. Thanks for dropping in.